DEI budgets are under attack, but the goals haven't changed. Whether you're looking to increase your DEI knowledge, expand your market reach, or gain a competitive advantage in business, we have the solution. TDM Library is your single source for expert curated DEI resources, strategies, and solutions, all designed to help you transform your workplace culture and be a more effective contributor. For $9.99 per month, you get access to our searchable subscription-based digital library. There, you'll find articles, practical how-to guidebooks, podcasts, award-winning micro-videos, and more than 700 Q&As designed to help DEI practitioners, thought leaders, and executives create a more inclusive workplace. Whether you prefer to listen, watch, or read, we have the resources for you. TDM Library goes beyond the basics to dive deep into topics such as inclusive language, the business case for DEI, talent acquisition, and C-suite engagement. For less than the price of a sandwich, you get access to our library of more than a thousand pieces of original expert curated DEI content. Join today and get your first 30 days free. Get your library card now at tdmlibrary.thediversitymovement.com. Welcome to the Hustle Unlimited podcast. Our mission is to inspire greatness in people who are chasing their dreams. We'll give you access to entrepreneurs and business leaders who will give you the fuel to chase the dreams that you have. All of our guests want to give back to the next generation of leaders by sharing the details of their journey and the lessons they've learned along the way. Please welcome the host of Hustle Unlimited, Donald Thompson, and this week's guest, James Forrest founder of The Forest Firm, one of the largest law firms in the state of North Carolina. Hey guys, this is DT uh, with another episode of uh, Hustle Unlimited. And like always, guys, what we want to do today is uh, introduce you to a phenomenal business person, a great uh, individual. Uh, and we're going to talk through some things today with James Forrest about how to really chase your dreams and impact the community in a powerful way while you're doing it. And one of the things that we want to do, as always, is we want to give inspiration to the dream chaser. And so with that, James, thanks for uh, hanging out with me. Man. Yeah, man. It's good to see you. Yeah, it's absolutely good to see you. I've been waiting literally for a month to get a chance to kick it with you. Everyone gets excited about meeting with a lawyer. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly right. <laughs> well, if the if meter's not kicking, absolutely. <laughs> a- absolutely. So here's here's the thing that, uh, that I'd like for you to do. Take a minute and just introduce yourself. Uh, where are you from? Brothers, sisters, where you went to school, married, single, all that good stuff. And then we'll kind of dive in from there and just talk some. Yeah, man. Yep. So I'm a corporate attorney, been doing that for 15 years, married to my wife, Julie, for more, longer than that. Uh, four kids, uh, Ava, 13, Marshall, 11, <laughs> Judah, who's nine, and uh, Zach is four. That's awesome. Uh, double Tar Hill grad uh, okay. from North Carolina, grew up near Charlotte, went to Chapel Hill for undergrad and law school. And been lawyering ever since, and uh, love Raleigh Durham, man. There's some ex- super exciting stuff going on here, and uh, love being an entrepreneur, entrepreneur here, and love helping entrepreneurs here. Oh, that's awesome. So one of the things that I know just from uh, being partnered with you in some things and knowing you is you started out, or when I met you, at a pretty large, prestigious law firm. Yep. And then after some time doing that, you decided to make a leap and really create something on your own. Can you take me through a little bit of that thought process, that thinking, and, and that experience? Sure. I spent seven years in two very large law firms, very traditional environment, sued every day, 70 hours a week, 
tough, kind of a hard environment. And um, I learned how to practice law there. It's a great experience for me. But there was a, a pretty significant thing lacking in terms of professional and personal alignment. And what I mean by that is, and you've experienced this as a client, a consumer of legal services over the years, is the, my very first clients were my friends. They're people that I knew in the community from my church, the boards that I was on, uh, the kids' softball team that I coached. And they came to me and they said, hey, we know you, we like you, you're a lawyer, let me engage you for legal services. And I brought them into this very reputable firm, uh, which I thought would go super well because I was very well-intentioned, I hustled a lot, yep. and some I had some of the best lawyers in the state around me. And much to my surprise, over a handful of relationships and over about six months to a year, as I started to bring some of those clients into the firm, their experience with me was just less than stellar. Uh, with, with the firm, was just uh, I just got negative feedback, and that surprised me. Uh, it bothered me because they were my friends first, uh, clients second. And so I asked them why. I didn't get it. And, and their feedback to me was, look, you're great. We like you. You respond to us. I'm sure you're a great lawyer, but you're wildly expensive. And more importantly than that, you're unpredictably expensive. So I call you. I give you something to do. And then I get a bill 30, 45 days, days later that's usually 3, 4, 5x what I expect it to be. Gotcha. Uh, and that's problematic for yeah, me. That's a challenge <laughs> for, for business owners. <laughs> and, I, you know, five years into my career, I, you know, I'd, I was still green enough to wear, or maybe humble and malleable enough to think how to put myself in the client's shoes and say, okay, how would I want to be treated in that situation? And I couldn't think of another context in my life where I get into something and not know what I'm going to spend on the front end. And so it made sense to me to slide a little bit of leverage back to the client side of the table. And so long-winded, but I just implemented pricing transparency into my practice at that point. And all gotcha. that meant was things that I could uh, flat fee and do on a predictable number, I would, uh, for things that were complicated, M&A, um, litigation, as you know, is, you know, unpredictable, uh, giving good faith estimates and just over-communicating with clients about spend. When I did that, it was like magic. Um, now, subtle change in the deliverable. So I want to jump in there for a minute. Over-communicating with clients. That supersedes the legal world. That's just any business that you're in, working with somebody in a service-based business sure. to exceed their expectation. Right. Yeah. For me, it really came from that moment when my clients, my friends, gave me that negative feedback, and that just didn't sit well with me. I wanted, I wanted alignment to where I felt good about what I was doing in the professional landscape. And if my clients weren't happy, that was dissettling to me. I wanted them to walk away raving, happy about what I did for them. And, the, and so the only way to get there was to ask them what the problem was and how I could fix it. And when I got the feedback, try to do it. Ask your clients what the problem is. Try to fix it. And then people will talk good about you and you grow. Yep. Tell me about the experience, though, of leaving that big firm and that security. There's some security in a big brand name sure. and different things and building your own brand from scratch. Yeah, for a year or two, I implemented those customer-centric principles while at the big firm. So I did make a leap of faith immediately. I just tr tried to do things a little bit differently while in that traditional environment. When I did that, that led to robust growth for my personal book of business, the number of clients that I was serving, and it made more and more sense as I progressed to maybe do that on my own. Uh, the traditional law firm is great and wonderful. I have friends there, learned a lot there, but it's not super client-centric. And so as I, I started to really push the envelope, rather than just giving you a flat fee on a task, what does it look like to manage your entire legal budget uh, monthly and annually for, yep. a, for a predictable spend number. Uh, and you can't really do that in a large law firm. They're not set up to really do that. And so w jumping out on my own gave me the freedom to do that. Uh, I launched Forest Firm in January of 2011. I spent eight years. Uh, the first three years I worked out of my bedroom. Uh, Love it. <laughs> hustling hard. <laughs> um, 
and it was a little scary. I mean, it was. I mean, there's there's a moment of jumping off the diving board you got to kind of fully embrace. Uh, but at, the, at that time, I had built up enough clients that it wasn't a complete leap of faith. I, I felt at least 70% certain that I could pay the mortgage, uh, and, it, and, it, and it's going well, man. As you know, um, we've had 2,000 clients engage our firm in the last eight years. So wait a minute. Three years in your bedroom. Yeah. Now you've got 2,000 clients that have used your services. Yep. So how many lawyers do you have on, as a part of your team now, and how do you find talent that fits the customer-centric vibe that you want to give? Yeah, so in my bedroom for three years, working really hard, trying to provide customer service with the legal deliverable, that went really, really well. Uh, and so in 2014, I had a brand new problem, which was how do I turn something that used to take me two hours or two days to turn to a client, and now it's taking me two weeks because I'm just overwhelmed with work, I've got to go out and hire talent to help me meet that need. And so I went out and hired one lawyer, uh, a guy from a big firm in Raleigh who shocked me to death that he would actually even join me, <laughs> but uh, even shocked me even more six months into it where he looks at me and he says, you know, I'm super happy. I'm making great money. I see my wife and kids. Um, you're really partnering with me to get me where I want to go professionally. Um, and the light bulb went off for me at that point that the lens that I had applied to clients, which was get in their shoes, be empathetic with their situation, and try to treat them the way that I'd want to be treated in their shoes. If you do that with clients, that'll go well. That was the business theory, and it did. There was return on investment with that. It felt like the right thing to do, but there was also ROI, which yeah. was awesome. If you apply that to legal professionals, right? We have a high depression rate, high suicide rate, high alcoholism rate. If we can do that better, comp people well, give them work flexibility, let them wear whatever they want to wear. Uh, so no suits all the time? No, nah, not all the time. I mean, every <laughs> now and then, when it, when it makes sense. But uh, if you do that, that's also the right thing to do. It might also have return on investment. And that's we've been working that theory out for the last four years from two to 45 people. And so you've got 45 people on your team now yep. over the last couple of years, which is amazing. Yeah. Right? So tell me some of the characteristics outside of the legal profession, right? You have to pass the bar, you got to be licensed to practice, all those things. But tell me about some of the characteristics that you're looking for as you're building your team. Yeah, that's not hard. Hungry, humble, smart. Uh, Patrick Lencioni, I don't know if you read the book, uh, ideal team player, but I want people, obviously they have to be qualitatively excellent with, excellent with legal, um, but, and they've got to be smart, right? Most lawyers are. Um, what we struggle with with legal professionals a lot is the humble part. Right? <laughs> uh, we, uh, I don't know if it's the personality trait or how they train us in law school, but, but we, we think we know a lot, and we, we do know a lot. And so it's, it's rare to find the combination of someone who's absolutely qualitatively excellent but is humble enough to say, man, there's some things I don't do well. I, I welcome objective feedback about that, and I, I want that so badly to get better that I'll check my ego at the door and let you speak some things into my life that, that maybe I don't want to hear. I mean, from an entrepreneur standpoint, that aligns, right? Humble, hungry, smart. I've seen a lot of businesses in, in my career, those that I advise, really smart people, hungry for excellence, but not humble enough to take advice so that they can make smart decisions faster. And a lot of times those businesses meet you know, with dire consequences. Yeah because we just don't all have all the answers, um, and we're looking for the right answers quickly. So let me, ask, um, let me ask this, pivot a little bit away from the firm. Tell me a little bit about some things growing up that shaped you as an entrepreneur, right? And, and a little bit of that, that journey to where you are today. I, I never thought I would be an entrepreneur. 
know, I went to law school. Lawyers are generally risk averse. You know, the, the risk takers go to get an MBA usually. Um, so I would disagree with that. Maybe, but yeah, yeah, but still. <laughs> so I, I didn't really have a lot of entrepreneurship growing up. I mean, I you know, worked you know, jobs here and there, but you know, I know your story going out and selling Jolly Ranchers. At yeah, yeah, whatever, whatever age that was, I didn't do that. I wasn't an entrepreneur that young. But I, I think for me, it's back at that law firm seeing the market opportunity in front of me for I didn't have this deep desire to be an entrepreneur I just had a deep desire for my clients to walk away happy right and I saw that, that was wasn't awesome. happening and I just decided I was going to do different and, and and maybe I could have still I could still be at that big law firm doing it differently right there was just there wasn't an imprint on me to you absolutely have to go be an entrepreneur it was I want to do the right thing in this situation that happened to lead to return on investment and as that grew it led to an entrepreneur entrepreneurship opportunity that, of course, I would take advantage of. The foundation for excellence is find a problem, solve a problem, and replicate, right? And a lot of times we try to make things about success so much more complicated than they really are. And so now, moving to family, though, right? You have four kids? Four kids. Right, so that's like, that's rock star status, right? So tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, raising four kids, some of the things you try to imprint on them as you're growing young leaders, Right in in our society. I mean, I think personally, uh, and then I'll, I'll hush. But a lot of the imprint of any business success I've had has been how my parents raised me to view the world and a work ethic, right. and uh, everything was available to me in terms of what I could think and dream and be. But I had to put the work underneath it because nothing was going to be given to me. Sure. Right. What are some of the things that that you teach your your young ones at home to uh, to build a better way for themselves and others? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I think about my boys. So I've got a girl, she's 13, and all of a sudden she likes boys. So I'm just going <laughs> to skip that chapter for a second because that could, that could be long-winded and get me in trouble. And then I've got two boys, 11 and 8, and then a 4-year-old. My 11-year-old and my 8-year-old, they, they have bunk beds in the same room. And, and on their wall, there's a Bible verse. It's uh, Luke 2.52. It says, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And really that's four categories that we kind of focus on, right? So their job, like I talk about their job, I go to my job, they have a job, right? And, and one of the big rocks of their job is going to school and developing their developing academically. Uh, another job they have is just to grow physically, right? And to take care of their body and exercise and eat right and those kind of things. Um, socially, right? To grow socially, uh, to grow in their friendships, to grow in their love for other people, their empathy for other people. How do you get them out of... Um, this me mentality that we all have a little bit of propensity to, yeah. but certainly in a younger generation, how do you get them thinking about um, loving other people well? And then obviously in their relationship uh, with a higher power or God, uh, spiritually, growing spiritually. And so we've used that as a model uh, for all of our kids, and um, who knows if we'll be successful or not. Uh, I don't think there's a one-for-one -one relationship on good parenting and kids turning out the way you want them to, but, uh, but that, that's, that's... Well, we stack the deck the best we can, <laughs> and, and, and it seems like you're absolutely uh, doing that. When you think about goals for the first form, goals that you have, what are you stretching for these days? Yeah, um, you've probably heard me say before that I affectionately say that I'm an A-minus lawyer and a C-plus CEO. And so I'm still learning how to be a CEO, and that role has changed. And I, I was a lawyer until about two years ago where we just got to a place as an organization where we really needed CEO-type leadership, and that's a full-time job and then some. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I'm, that, that's kind of set the stage of I don't know if I'm great at it. Um, we don't have an established five-year, ten-year plan. Um, 
I'm a visionary, right? And I'm passionate about treating people the way that I'd want to be treated. That's clients, it's our legal professionals now that they're here. And then the third prong of our mission statement is giving back to the community. And awesome. those three things, I think, are a recipe for big success. Uh, deep down, I really feel like it's the right thing to do, and I feel like I'm moving the needle to positively impact the people around me, but it also has big ROI attached to it as well. So how big is big enough? I don't know. Uh, we're 45 people. I think we're just scratching the surface of it. I think we could be 100 people very easily over the next several years across North Carolina. Our strategic goal is to be North Carolina's go-to business law firm, and in order to do that, we've got to be meaningfully active in all of its markets, so we've been pretty intentional about opening offices in Asheville and Charlotte and That's Winston, awesome. Greensboro, Wilmington. So you mentioned the community prong. So uh, you'll correct me if I don't get it right, but you're a B Corp. Correct. Right? And so that has a specific set of criteria for things that you do as a part of your corporate give back. Yep. Share that with our group a little bit, both what it is, because sure. uh, I kind of know acronyms but not always the depth. Um, yep. So what it is, but also why you chose that to be critically important to what you guys are doing. Sure. So I'll educate a little bit and then I'll okay. tell you a little bit of why. So B Corp is actually a legal designation in 30 plus states in the U.S. where you can file articles with the Secretary of State and say, I'm not going to be the traditional C Corp or an LLC, we're going to be a B Corporation. And all that does is put in your charter or your bylaws that we're going to be focused on triple bottom line profitability. So profits, certainly, but people and planet, too. So we can generate profits and then also care for our people well Got it. and be a good steward of the resources that we've been given in, in terms of the planet, environmental footprint, and those kind of things. So what that does, it allows a CEO to take some risk in some ways they might not, not otherwise be able to. So as a, if you're not a B Corp, you've got a fiduciary duty, as you know, as CEO, to your uh, constituents, your shareholders, to maximize profits for your company. And so if you write a big check to Habitat for Humanity, or you give your employees a big raise that's beyond market to treat them well, you might have a shareholder raise their hand and say, man, I need you to maximize profits, right. not not give back generously to people on the planet. And right. so <laughs> it gives you permission, right? Because you've got it in your documents before that investor gives a dollar to that company. That's awesome. They know that you're committed to doing something different. So. North Carolina does not have that legislation yet. So there's a third party certification um, that you can get a B Corp cert we're B Corp certified. So it's an independent third party that comes in and looks at the way that we do things, uh, how we treat our people, how much money we give away, uh, our environmental footprint, lack thereof. Uh, we have a work from anywhere environment, so that jobs well with what we're doing. And they say, yes, you are, you've met the mark, you've got enough points awesome. to be classified as a B corporation even though your state doesn't have that in their bylaws and so it, it's a growing movement I think you'll hear more and more about it um, that's really more, cool more and more larger companies are really moving that direction um, and it's something we're really proud of for us I think we've been a B Corp three years it really puts a bow around what we were doing anyway okay clients culture community right treating people the way we'd want to be treated that can get wordy you know I can talk a lot yeah, yeah sure sure put a camera on I'll start talking um, <laughs> It's a way that you can put it in our email signature that we're different. Got it. Right? And so there's a little bit of a marketing play to it. It's not why we do it, but we want our people to know. Our but it's client, okay to share goodness. That, yeah. we're, that we're doing some good stuff. Yeah. So, no, I appreciate that very much. And I think, you know, it amplifies, right, who you are and the company you want to build that that was important to you to do. And I think that's pretty awesome. With the 2,000 clients, back to all the different business folks that you've met, Tell me some of the winning characteristics from other CEOs or executives that you've seen throughout North Carolina that we could share with 
with our audience? It's hard to get away from hungry, humble, smart. <laughs> I think about that a lot, uh, both with clients and our people. Um, I think beyond that, a willingness to be shaped. Um, you know, because lawyers are held at arm's length, because we're expensive and we're unpredictably expensive, we usually get the stiff arm from executives that are moving fast because we hold them back, right? And I think until an executive has stubbed their toe and had the HR claim or the litigation matter or the non-compliance with law or regulatory issue, you tend to hold lawyers at arm's length because they're expensive, you've never had to use them before, and they get in your way. After you've had some years, some experience uh, with various companies, you start to understand the value of preventative sure. maintenance, right? You can't drive to California and decide you're not gonna put gas in the car, or put oil That's in the right. car, right? So there's some preventative maintenance that needs to be done. So executives that kind of get that um, is helpful. Um, and then executives that, that kind of understand that all parts of the organization are needed. You know, it's very common to have an executive who's sales oriented, and that's all they think about. It's very common to have an executive that's finance oriented, that's all they think about, HR, operations. But you, when you really see the all-star executives, they can wear all those hats if they need to. Gotcha. But they can also rise above that and, and hire the right people. And and maybe, maybe the last one would be recognizing their weaknesses, right? I mean, like, and that goes back to humble, right? So it's hard yes, for me not right. to—it's hard for me not to put it through that matrix of yeah, humble, hungry, smart. Man, I, I mean, it's—I get it. <laughs> it's rare. It's really rare to find someone who's really smart, really successful, and really humble at the same time. But I found it to be the the package. No, that's awesome. So when you look at our society, there's some challenges. There's noise around. There's political noise. There's. Uh, kids that don't get the opportunity to education like they should. If you had a magic wand, right, what are one or two of the things you'd do to put us on a better path right in our society? Wow, that's a good question. Um, I am afraid of our level of discourse these days, uh, not both in terms of tone, frequency, how loud it is, how we all kind of sit in our camps, whether it be politics, religion, race, what have you. We listen to certain news channels, right, that echo our sentiments or not. Yep. Um, and it's it's kind of like this uh, echo chamber where we're kind of hearing the same stuff and we get further and further entrenched into our positions. And so, you know, I think about, I'm 40 years old and the first 20 years of my life, I felt like as a society, we were able to have a polite Thanksgiving conversation around politics or religion or any other topic that might be somewhat controversial. And it seems like we can't really do that these days. At least I'm afraid yeah. to do that these days because immediately the moment I give you some information about my background, I get categorized into a certain group with stereotyped a certain way. Uh, and, and I'm not sure I know the answer, yep. uh, but social media, everyone's got their own PR team, right? 140 <laughs> characters yeah, away. Yeah, and click. Yeah. It, it's tough, man. I, I worry for my kids a little bit in terms of the environment they're going to grow up in. What's some of the best advice you've ever gotten? I would have to say, and this is in the last couple of years, focus on only what you can do. Find out the things that only you can do in your organization and then only do those things. Uh, I've really implemented that in the last couple of years. And for me, that's business development, lawyer recruiting, telling the story, right? And it's easy for me to get bogged down in some of the minutiae that I can easily delegate to a team member. So narrowing my focus to what only I can do and then only do those things. No, that's powerful advice. So let me give you some space. What are some uh, organizations or things that you're interested in that you'd like to 
share about, yeah. right? If, if people had an extra few dollars where you encourage them to give, like what, what would you use that space for to educate our audience on some cool things that are out there? Yeah, so I don't really have one organization in particular right now. We're actually in the, in the middle of organizing our kind of community giving uh, policy at Forest Firm. It's a big part of our mission. In fact, we've had one of our lawyers uh, who's going to take you know, a pretty healthy percentage of her time and dedicate it to making sure that we follow through with our commitment to um, positively impacting the communities that we're in. Awesome. Um, and the vision that I've cast for that is, you know, what does it look like if we disappear from Wilmington tomorrow or if we disappear from Asheville tomorrow or Charlotte tomorrow? Who would miss us and why? Our dollars, our acumen, our influence, our effort. And so we're on the front end of, you know, who, what particular organizations we partner with. Uh, but I think there's going to be a, a, a real push at a corporate level and then at each office level to make sure that we're uh, doing that well. Um, you know, personally for me, yeah. you know, of my four kids, two of them are adopted. Uh, one's from Ethiopia and one's from China. And so orphan care or, you know, care for folks that, you know, orphans, you know, the widows, there's the kind of different groups of people that, that um, may not have all the resources they need in society. Those are particularly passionate for me. So there's a couple organizations that uh, my wife and I give to that, that focus on that. No, that's awesome. Well, listen, I am super excited that you hung out with me a little bit. Oh, yeah. And uh, it's fun and always informative. Humble, hungry, smart is a phenomenal way to think about it. Well, and <laughs> I would love for the listeners to know, you know my story of sitting at Morgan Van Allen and having some clients come in that weren't happy with what I did for them, that this guy was one of them. <laughs> Actually, one of, the, one of the first and one of the loudest. And here we are. And here we are. 13 years later, uh, hanging out. So I appreciate you, the trajectory you've had, the impact you've had on me. You've had a lot of influence on me. Personally and professionally, so thank you for that. No, that is, I am smiling uh, <laughs> ear to ear. If I was white, I'd be red in the face. But yeah, that was a that was a moment. I was not, I wasn't pleased that day. But we but we worked through it. We did. We, <laughs> we worked through it. With that, guys, uh, DT over and out. Um, super fun uh, to spend some time with you guys. And again, inspiration to the dream chaser. If you've got a dream, then it's worthy to be followed. Thank you for joining us on Hustle Unlimited. Make sure to join us each week for more conversations with leaders in our community. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and subscribe on your favorite podcast player. Until next time, make it a great week.